Hello and welcome to Actuarial People with myself, James Turner. I'm excited to be launching a brand new podcast where each week I'll be speaking with the UK actuary. My aim is to give you, the listener, greater insight into the people behind the profession and their personal career journeys. So we'll cover things like why and how they became an actuary, what they do on a day-to-day basis, how they balance work and study with life, any specialisms they've developed, and how their role has evolved over time. So whether you're an actuary yourself, or you're aspiring to become one in the future, welcome and enjoy. Welcome to Actuarial People, Richard Galbraith. Thank you, James, for having me along. Looking forward to talking with you. Thanks very much for for agreeing to be on the show. How are you today? I'm good. Been a busy few weeks, but I think that's probably everybody as they come up to year end and then you get the Christmas parties and then the lunches and then people looking for a bit of time. It's all good though. All wonderful. Yeah, I suppose now now that I work for myself, I don't the Christmas party thing. You know, I, I know what it felt like when you got so many things <laughs> going on. But now I really enjoy just being at home the whole time and just more Christmas is more about the children and and that sort Definitely. of thing. So it feels a little bit calmer in one respect. But um, but yeah, thank you so much for for agreeing to to spend some time with me. Um, I wondered if you could just start off by giving the listeners a a quick overview of who you are and what you do today, and then we'll go back to the beginning and uh, and work through from there. Of course. Who am I? Who is Richard? So I am an actuary. I probably look at me more as an actuarial toolkit than hardcore actuary because I'd like to think I'm quite diverse. I'm a proud generalist, let's say. So I've been working in an actuarial profession since last century. Sounds like a long time. So (laughs) 1999, I started my exams. Uh, I've had a wide range of different roles over the years from the exceptionally technical building actuarial systems and models and Moses and Profit and spreadsheets and VB6 and all the stuff that everybody will be knowing very, very well. Uh, And then moving through that in 2010, I probably made a distinct decision to think I'd I build the models, I understand the models. How are we using the numbers? So I moved more into actuarial reporting for a few years and then it was actually thinking okay I know the reporting how do I actually move that on how do people make decisions off the back of these how do you run a company and I think at that point I ended up more in the risk side and I'd picked up the Chartered Enterprise Risk Qualification around 2014-15 and it was just accumulation of everything that I'd actually worked in and I thought that gives me an opportunity just to stick my finger in all the different parts of the business understand how it all works and start to help people make better decisions and I, th- I think it's just flowed right through there so we, we can dig into it shortly but where I've ended up at the moment I'm sort of in a sort of large company Canada Life I'm director of enterprise risk management for Europe so I, I'm not just playing with the, the UK business and sort of looking at the risk management systems and frameworks that they've got in place I'm looking right across Europe so I've gotten a chance to engage with Germany uh, sort of Ireland, UK, but also work a lot with the Canadian business as well, sort of building a lot on the strategic risk management side of things. So I, I find that really interesting because I think for me, as an actuary, I think risk can be the heart of a business and actually understand the technical, but as well as the soft side. And again, we can look at that shortly. It all comes together, but then 
how do you run a business if you don't have a strategy, you don't have very much. I think all of that comes together. And for me, that that's where actuaries end up, risk and strategy. Fantastic. Well, lots we can we can dig into, but um, I'll start where I always do, which is asking okay. you to cast your mind way back to when you first realised that actuaries existed. When did I realise actuaries existed? It's a, it's a question I've thought about now and again. So I'm getting on a bit now. Not that old, I don't think, but <laughs> it's looking off into the distance so I think about this. I think I was 14 and you know when we're all young parents do barbecues and stuff like that and they invite all the neighbours round and so one of the neighbours was actually uh, sort of a careers advisor and she worked at sort of I think a local school and as you ask all 14 year olds what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm-hmm. I like maths, I like some of the sort of maybe 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 law maybe doing that side and i gave the lady uh, her name was alice simpson so that that was many years ago <laughs> but we were having the barbecue warm summer day middle of summer must have been 1990 1989 giving people exactly what my age is now uh and she looked at me and said i think you would be a good actuary what does an actuary do and she talked in general terms, it's about the numbers, there's some legal sides when you talk about do that, but it's doing calculations, but then you've got the law and then you've got all that other stuff. And so being 14, I didn't really do very much about it, but I went, well, interesting, what's an actuary? And generally I followed what I enjoyed. So at school, I enjoyed maths, I enjoyed history, and I think a lot of that came down to the teachers rather than any other yeah. anything else. So I enjoyed maths and history, and so I went to university. I took the option to do history, maths, and politics, which is, you get a careers advisor at the time going, you can't do that. Me being me going, well, I can at Glasgow, I can do it at St Andrews, I can do that at Bath. I can. So I, I, I did what I wanted to do, studied maths, history, and politics, kept the history and politics alongside the maths for the first couple of years, and then I specialised in maths at Glasgow University for my last couple of years. And again, I hadn't thought too much then about being an actuary. I really wanted to just learn and enjoy and doing what I'm doing. And I think it was coming to the end of Glasgow, and it was one of my sort of the professors at the time had asked me again, what do you want to do? And he talked about being an actuary, and he said that his brother had been an actuary, did well out of it. And it made me think about what I wanted to do. So obviously at that point I went and did a master's in theoretical computer science rather than anything <laughs> else. So I managed to get another degree in there. But at that point I had to make a decision. And rather than taking on a doctorate, there were several options at the time. I decided to sort of look at being an actuary. And so I applied for several jobs at the end of 1990. Seven ninety eight. No, end of ni- Yeah, end of nineteen ninety eight. Applied for several jobs, and then I had I had interviews from a, quite a few places at the time, and I feel very lucky that I could. So I'd, I'd interviewed with Aon, interviewed with Mercers, and I think there was a couple of others, and I had a few job offers. Mercers one fell through because I think there was a timing point on it, but I took a job with Aon uh, back in and started in nineteen ninety nine. So. I'd no, to be honest, at the time, I look back on it and laugh a little, but I had no idea Aon was doing pensions consulting. It was actually, I wanted to be an actuary. I got a chance to go and build models and do calculations. So I joined as an actuary 
And I think a few years later, I figured out, okay, it's a pensions actuary that I'm doing, so I probably look a bit silly thinking about it uh, back there. But I kind of shifted through there, so eventually qualified as a life actuary and I sort of specialised in risk. How did you find it in, in pensions? Because I guess there isn't... You can play around with Excel and stuff like that, yeah. but you're not, you're not building models in the same way that you do on the insurance side. Was was that part of the reason you moved over? Or I'd probably say there was a bit of a challenge. So thinking back, we did a lot of individual pensions calculations, and it was using the tables back then, doing that. And I remember sort of trying to build some of the sort of early pension valuation models and spreadsheets okay. because it, I just didn't see the point. Because I'd come from a sort of maths degree and theoretical computer science, I knew enough about systems. That I said, well, we could build this system doing such and such. We could put these calculations into the model, uh, into the spreadsheet, sort of a few inputs quite easily. And I remember at the time, I was basically told, well, that, that sounds absolutely wonderful. We've got six weeks to the next round of valuations. Could you do it in your spare time? And I went, no, that's not really going to work for me. <laughs> it, it was a little bit of a bigger project. And I think I looked for an opportunity there. I, I think I realised I enjoyed that systems development side and I looked for an opportunity and I joined Hyman's Robertson. Uh, and I'd, again, it, it was still, still in pensions, but I'd, so I joined the local government pension scheme team and on the first day I remember having sort of you you always get taken out to lunch your first day meet the team and I was talking to one of the partners at the time and I've still got I, I've not had a chance to catch up with the guy for many many years guy Michael Tobias but wonderful guy but he said in the first day if you've got an interest in all this do you want to help me build pension valuation system because the guy I'm working with is actually leaving in the next couple of weeks I'd be keen to show you what I'm doing so day two I left the local government pension scheme team really? and joined <laughs> Michael in his office and started building a pension valuation system I remember sort of spending many fun afternoons trying to build the code, trying to do that, building a front end and, and even sitting down there one afternoon going, what do we call it? And we went, Moses is taken, profit's taken, why don't we go down a similar, okay, let's call it Exodus. And actually, I take an awful lot of pride. It's, there's a little bit of legacy building in that because I was speaking to somebody in Hyman's a few months ago and I said, oh, yeah, I remember I built a system we called it Exodus. We still use Exodus. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> so anybody in Hyman's, for your thousands of people back in the day, we had probably 150, 200 people in Hyman's back then. We built, and I saw it help design the first version of Exodus that you still use, which is probably completely changed now, but... Uh, so, so long story short, the the pension side of that, I actually ended up building sort of pension valuation model in Moses with the VB6 front end crystal reports sort of reporting system. But over the few years, we we built the Moses sort of back end engine that sort of drove the pension valuation system. Okay. And so I looked at myself as a sort of actuarial systems developer. So I'd left Hyman's around 2004. Took a bit of time off just for a bit of a change, travelled a little, and then I looked for some contracts and I was offered a sort of Moses development contract in Standard Life. And it was moving over to the life side. And I remember thinking, do I know much about life models? But it was basically the same. It's an actuarial toolkit. I was a system developer, could understand the code, develop the system, uh, the software specification design, look at what was needed. It was a slightly different methodology but it's 
basically still looking at mortality and morbidity and doing the projections forward. Mm-hmm. Slightly different reserving, slightly different calculations, but it wasn't dramatically different. And then I think that kind of stuck. So I got the experience from standard life and moved solidly into the life side. Yeah. And then that took me into Viva, again, as a systems developer, sort of IAC, International Actuarial Consultant. It, we sounded like a, fly, a circus troupe. We were, <laughs> we were called the Flying Modelers, but we went to different business units throughout Aviva's different markets and basically built the profit models that they had. And so I'd, for me, it wasn't a choice of our pensions or life. It was just doing systems and building models. And I just enjoyed that at the time. Yeah. And you were you were contracting for Aviva? Uh, I joined Aviva permanently. I contracted for Standard Life for about oh, eighteen months back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fair enough. Well, let, let's let's keep going. What, what what did you do next? Um, did you keep going down the systems route? Oh. Hi guys, we'll get straight back to the conversation in a second. Just a quick reminder that when I'm not recording podcasts, I specialise in helping pensions actuaries with their career moves, and I'd love to help you when the time comes to explore your options. I work with people at all levels, whether you have a couple of years experience through to senior positions. My approach is different to most recruiters. I started my own business last year and work alone, which means I have zero pressure to hit targets and can just focus on giving the best possible help and advice. So whether you're thinking of making a move now or would just like to understand your options for the future, please get in touch via LinkedIn or email james at turnerperkins.com. Back to the show. So I started off with the systems routes. So I started in Aviva beginning of 2007, spent about a week there, then moved out to Amsterdam to Delta Lloyd, who Aviva owned at the time. And they were building, they were using Profit ALS. And so I sort of learned Profit ALS that for me was very close to Moses because the it, it, it was more long hard coding. It wasn't sort of the, the profit building blocks, it was more the profit code that you could actually sort of go through the full sort of script and sort of write that code. So I spent about six months building some of their life models. And then I, I think at the time they changed direction. I think it was quite a lot of changes at the time in the company. So that bit of project was sort of they drew a line under it. So I remember writing some good guidance for coding uh, and software development within sort of life companies to do that and I remember eventually that for a different project the document that I wrote was picked up about three years later and they used that as one of their Polish shared service centers foundations on how it was working so somebody picked that up so it it was quite good to see that but I spent two years in Amsterdam doing that work and then I moved down to Paris and so I'd, I'd been very hardcore sort of development at that time moved down to Paris I was working the MCV team but uh, the market consistent embedded value at the time it was around 2008 2010 what happened then oh yes there was a global financial crisis which mm. market consistency didn't really work that well but it was still being pushed out uh, and so I was sort of working with the MCV team, developing the models, but then it was setting up the models, running the models, looking at the results, writing sort of more of the valuation report. So it was actually that half step away from the modeling at that point. I wasn't just developing the models anymore. It was actually doing the valuation, writing the report, supporting the French business, write the reports in English uh, to actually sort of ship, send those up to the Viva Group side of things, which everything had to come through in the sort of the business language of English. And I think at the end of that 
period, I spent about a year in MCV team, moved over to the asset liability team, ALM team. So I got quite some experience building those models, but again, it was more that reporting side. So when I moved back to London at the end of 2010, I was basically looking after all the European reporting. So the sort of the French actuarial reporting looked after what else? Italy, Poland, some of Asia, a little bit of the US. But I really kind of enjoyed seeing how the numbers were coming together and coming out the models at that point. So it was actually quite good having that sort of really heavy system stuff. I know how the models work. I knew what could be done and what couldn't be done. It led to some interesting conversations to with France. So a long time ago, so it doesn't matter. But uh, I remember one conversation with one of my French counterparts who said, Richard, you know the model doesn't work like that. We can't do the calculation. And I said, open up the model. I said, look at the code. I said, look at the uh, sort of comment next to that line. I said, I wrote the code. I know it works like that because I did it. So yeah. can you run that model, put it through and send it up to me? Which he promptly did because I don't think he'd appreciated that we'd actually written the code to do it that way. Yeah. But I spent the next couple of years within Aviva sort of doing a lot of the reporting and then a lot of uh, moved into methodology and assumptions, insurance risk, everything kind of related to that. I tried an internal audit for a while, but for me it was a little bit removed from some of that detail. But it was trying to find that balance of the oversighting of the stuff that was going uh, going on without just looking at that process element of it. Uh, so started more and more getting into sort of different things, so operational risk, the risk side, and so Solvency 2 was coming in then, so supporting that implementation and economic capital and kind of the translation between the two. And then I just had an opportunity to actually both run the team that I had worked in in Aviva uh, in Amsterdam and Paris. So I managed the team for a couple of years that I'd actually worked in internationally, the IAC team. But at the same time, I also went into the Aviva Group Risk team for six months in secondment. And uh, after that six months secondment, working on ORSAs, working in CRO reports, understanding the different risks in the business and seeing some of the, the meaty detail that you didn't always see elsewhere. I yeah. really enjoyed that and had the opportunity to actually move into Viva Health for two years, still managing my old team, but also at the same time, uh, sort of setting up the risk frameworks for the health business. So I got to sort of really enjoy working in the health and I, I really enjoyed that part. That was good. So that kind of took me up to the end of my Aviva career. France and Amsterdam, was that you wanting to work in other places or did the job pull you there? How, how did you decide to, to go and spend some time overseas? It's a good question. I think it it was more that it came up. So it was interesting, that, that IAC role, International Actuarial Consultant, I'd actually been called every year for about four years by different recruiters on it to say, would you come and do this? And I think it got to the point at the end of my standard life sort of contract it was something that was starting to appeal because it meant that I could actually go and experience different countries while using the skills and techniques and things that I took it that I'd learned so actually taking that to Amsterdam for a couple of years and then Paris it wasn't a plan to say you will spend two years in Amsterdam you will spend two years in Paris it was like well here's here's something in Amsterdam it might be three months it might be a year it might be that and it, it just get, kept getting rolled on and then I made the decision eventually when I had an opportunity to move to Paris I'd met my wife around the same time uh, she lived with me in Amsterdam and then we basically said hey do you want to jump in a train and we'll go and work in Paris 
now for a while. And I was just taking that opportunity. It, we didn't have other responsibilities or too much at the time. So actually moving from one country to another country, trying something different while you had that st- the safe background as an actuary, as a as a company that was supporting you to do it. It, it was just a really safe comfortable way of actually experiencing those places so it was absolutely fantastic experience i still look back in that and go i loved having that opportunity for several years to go and experience that what's it like being in a work environment in those locations i'm sure lots of people have been to to paris or amsterdam or, 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 yeah. or both as a as a tourist but um are there differences in terms of like office culture communication that sort of thing or is it pretty pretty similar to london there's different attitudes. I would say that in the UK, we probably are very polite around how we do stuff. Okay. But I hadn't spent a lot of time working. So I'd, I'd done some stuff in the UK, but as a student, so you're sitting in exams, you try and always kick off at the time to study. But actually, I paused the exams at that time. That's a different story maybe we can look at. But uh, I remember being in Amsterdam and I would they generally got in quite early. So they were getting in at maybe 8, 8.15, so I would cycle to work, do that, but then you would leave very promptly, 4.30, 4.45, so you get your hours in. And I do remember at one point the manager said, oh, we've got a lot on this week, Let's uh, do you mind doing an extra couple of hours at the end of the day? Well, okay, that means half past four to half past six, let's do it. So he took us out to dinner first, then we came back and spent about another hour. We still get out of the office by 6pm. Hmm. Paris, well, and, and the other thing in Amsterdam was, I think the phrase is, a spade is a spade. And you get very used to people calling it as it is. We're not mincing about with what we're saying here. We're not being polite. If we don't like it, we don't like it. And I'll tell you, and vice versa, if we really like it, I like it. So it, it was wonderful that people would just be open and honest. And while if you're not used to that, it's quite blunt, I think it builds a trust because you know where you know where you stand with somebody. Yeah. Moving to France, it was very different types of hours. People would generally be getting in a lot later. So this was like 9.15, 9.30 start. But then they would have, there was a lot more coffee breaks. But then at 7pm, people would start taking out dinner menus and go, what are we eating for tonight? And it was just, it was an expectation that because you took longer lunches and sort of longer time during the day, you would actually be working longer in the evening. And so it was a common occurrence, especially during year end, that you wouldn't leave the office before nine or ten. And so actually having that experience of those different cultures, coming back to London at the end of 2010, doing relatively normal hours, getting in at sort of 8.30, 8.45, taking your lunch break, going for a run, whatever it would be, but then working through to sort of 6, 6.30, 7 o'clock, it didn't feel too stretched because I could have seen both sides, but I could also manage my teams in a way that I'd learned something from the Dutch culture of let's be open and honest about this but maybe be a little bit nicer with the English touch the Scottish touch there but it, it was really interesting I, I really take a lot from that time and maybe that has influenced me as a manager quite a lot because you have to be more sensitive to different working styles and different people so you actually try and think how do people how do people work and how does that land have you worked in the USA as well? It's sort of uh, about that. I've not. Well, I spent three months building spreadsheets with Ford's World Headquarters uh, at the end of 
1998, basically doing a little bit of a, just a bit of a secondment for a while. So I had a friend when I studied at Oxford who actually ran a company there that was doing contracts for different companies and sort of building models and doing that. And after the, the degree that I did, we, we were good friends and he said, well, do you want to come and work for my company for several months? So I'm, I worked in Michigan near Detroit for a few months, which again was a very different culture. I just remember all the sort of, uh, sort of the little cubicle culture and everybody's got their little space and doing that. So that, that was different. But again, that was probably one of my first jobs. I didn't have much to compare to in that. I've engaged a lot with the US over the years with other things that I've been involved in, just sort of the global actuarial profession. But I haven't, apart from that, I haven't worked as an actuary in the US as such. Um, We'll we'll come back to your your career path maybe um, a bit later, but when you go on LinkedIn, it doesn't matter which section you click on, there's so much that you can go into your education. You haven't just gone to uni, got one degree and then then left it. Volunteering though, if we could start there, because you've done so much volunteering work for the IFOA. Can Mm -hmm. you tell us a bit about some of the some of your your highlights from doing that? Yeah. No, it was interesting. I again I've reflected on this quite a lot because and when when we do our day jobs, and I'll I'll come to volunteering in a second, but when we do our day jobs often you have the task that come down from your manager, that come down from the exec, whatever else, and you, you basically have a job to do. And sometimes that can get quite stressful because you don't have control over that side of the work. I remember when I qualified, I, I remember sitting there, and it's an odd thought because I got the last exam, and I think the first thought, apart from extreme relief, and I, I know that results were out, and there'll be a lot of people feeling that, yeah. but I remember sitting there because it took me so long to qualify. Uh, but I remember sitting there going what do I do now and I just thought how do I give myself something different to do because I've got this nothing's really changed I'm I'm like student yesterday I'm qualified today wonderful but what do I do with it and I just remember thinking how do I give myself the opportunity to present and it's just something that stood out in my head what do I present on because I, I wanted to be able to stand up. Not that I enjoyed it at the time, but I, I knew that it was something that I felt as if I was lacking and it was quite important to me. Why? Why was it important to you? I think at that point, I I think I felt like I'd floated for an awful long time. Because I took so long for the exams and because I felt like I had different roles, I didn't feel that I'd actually achieved what I wanted to achieve. And I think at that time, the people that I looked up to, and I include people like, Matt Saker because he was my line manager and obviously he's he's the immediate past president at the IFOA but he was my line manager in Aviva for several years when I was international and I I took a lot from him and the ability to stand up and present and I looked at all these senior actuaries and thinking how do they manage to do this how do they stand up they've got the confidence and gravitas to actually be there and I, it was for me it was something that I was lacking as part of the teams that I did. It was technical stuff. I didn't really have the opportunity to do that. And I thought, I want to make something for me to do it. Mm-hmm. And I remember I'd attended a professionalism session. I think it was Malcolm Slee, who's sort of retired several years ago now. But I'd call Mal- uh, Malcolm a friend, and he's still on council, still really engaging with everything that goes on. But he used to uh, chair the, the professionalism committee at the IFOA. And I remember thinking... 
how do I stand up and present in professionalism? Because obviously I can't do all these offices. So I remember writing to the IFOA saying, well, is there a pack that I can use? And they'd sent me a, just a, a basic pack to say, you can pull together, here's some of the actuarial videos, here's some uh, sort of questions and answers, and here's a template for it. So I remember pulling together a pack. I invited my team to do a professionalism session and 50 people turned up. Goodness sake, that was downright scary because I hadn't presented to six before, let alone 50. So I'm standing <laughs> up at the podium, asked a friend to support me. But it was it was an absolute rush and I really enjoyed doing that. So I basically made something in Aviva at the time. It was I started doing professionalism and I thought, what else? So I started doing the CPD and I created the Knowledge Sharing Working Group that looked across people in the business. What are you working on? Can we share this? Can we do it for CPD? And, and I think that started to get seen by people. So Malcolm, who was in Aviva, said, do you want to join the professionalism committee? So I joined that. And because I was doing the CPD and sharing with things that were going on externally, I could see everything that was going on. And there was one that jumped up at me that was the IFOA representative to the International Actuarial Association on the Advice and Assistance Committee must have an interest in education. Well, I've just qualified, took far too long, and I really want to help people on that. Massive and international, international. Spent several years there, still got good connections. Let's look at that. Must have an interest in professionalism. Well, got that. I'm holding those sessions. So I put my name in as I've got an interest in doing this. Uh, and I remember I met with uh, sort of Chris Dakin. And it was quite funny because I invited down for an interview to join it. Chris gave me an interview. He said, oh, you'll be... Uh, he said, I w- I, we would like to sort of bring you on to sort of take my role in the Advice and Assistance Committee, or could you also be in the African Subcommittee? I remember went back to the office and said to someone, oh yeah, I met this guy, Chris, Chris Dakin. The Chris Dakin? Who? What do you mean, the Chris Dakin? And he said, oh, he's the ex-government chief actuary, he's the ex-president of the Institute of Actuaries, he's an ex-president of the International Actuarial Association. Goodness sake, this guy had a CV that went through the roof, and I think he's probably got every single acronym from every single actuarial association around the world that he set up that probably goes on for about four pages. But I hadn't appreciated it, I wish, I'm glad I probably didn't at the time when I interviewed with him. But I was offered this role uh, to sort of be a representative on uh, advice and assistance committee. And I remember he said, oh, and could you take my position? Uh, we need to go to South Africa at the end of the year. If you could be there, that would be great. And by the way, we're going to St. Petersburg in May. Goodness sake, I'd expected to join a couple of conference calls. So, yeah. that, so it kind of blew me away, the opportunity that I had to do that. But I really... I really enjoyed engaging with the people and actually looking at the challenges that that real profession had around the world. And what I realised very quickly, and I, this is quite interesting for a lot of our IFOA sort of listeners, the IFOA is an association, we're not the profession. And I hadn't realised that until I actually looked at the IAA. There's about another 90 actuarial associations around the world. And IFOA, albeit the biggest, is one of them. And it was quite interesting engaging in a very different way and helping the profession grow. So the Advice and Assistance Committee role was helping that actuarial profession grow in areas of the world where it's not quite as developed. And so through the next couple of years, I became the vice chair of that, then the chair of that for three years. 
and it was actually engaging with regulators around the world, engaging with the presidents around the world of associations and actually sort of running this sort of committee of 35 people to develop that aerial profession. So it's given me such a different view. And off the back of that and with the professionalism and things that I was doing, I was approached as well, do you want to stand for IFOA council? <laughs> and I remember thinking, I don't have time to do this, but I was convinced <laughs> at the end of the day to do it. And so 2018, I got elected and I feel very lucky because some of the people that I've met there, they're some of my best friends now and I take a lot. I, I just feel so lucky to be surrounded by these great people, including some of the presidents of sort of the IFOA and sort of the past presidents, current presidents, incoming presidents. And it's just it's fantastic to be part of this. And I've, I've just enjoyed that so much. And I think for me, the volunteering, I feel that in my companies that I've been in, sometimes it's been hidden a little bit just because you've got your day job to do, that pays the bills. But actually, the greatest value that I've had in my career so far, I would say, would be from volunteering. It's something that I drove myself. It's something that I decided, oh, I'm going to look over there. That looks interesting. Can I be part of that? And actually, the IAA and IFOA, for me, is been really welcoming because I'd, I'll call somebody up and go, I'd like to have a look at this could I be part of the committee could we have a conversation could we link in here and do something and it's just been fundamentally about collaboration working together building the profession and getting these like minds together not thinking the same but actually the people who still believe in this ultimate vision of oh that's where your profession is a wonderful place to be and it does so much good around the world and just I know I'm talking a lot but one of the one of the points in the volunteering that really jumped out to me, we had set, we had created the fifth Af- African Actuaries Congress. We'd uh, created that conference in, and we'd held it in Casablanca in 2018. And I remember going out to that conference, and I think it was somebody, I think it was one of the finance ministers from the Ministry of Finance who stood up and said, "We're a developing country. We need actuaries." And we don't have enough because we can't transfer the risk from individuals who can't afford this risk to diversify this to companies that can hold this risk to reinsure to do that and without actuaries we're not going to develop much more and it was just something that struck me of the importance of what we do and trying to actually shift that along that there's so many countries out there and then while in the uk we're very developed is actually forgetting that sometimes throughout Africa, Asia, Latin America, that they don't have the same infrastructure there. And actually having the skill set that we've got and the toolkit we've got can actually fundamentally change economies, like continent on a continental level. And I found that quite overwhelming and I, I almost feel quite lightheaded talking about that just now because I get quite excited thinking about what we do bring as actors and I think that's why that's what volunteering's given to me I think it has given the purpose of I want to shift this profession in a way that is bigger than us just doing those calculations that I did when I sort of did my first couple of years it's why do we do these calculations why do we think about the numbers how do we make better decisions to help people in that example, in the, the African example, they need more actuaries. What do you then do? Is, is it Does it fall on you to come up with solutions and, and, and what happens next? It's, it's actually recognising why we need actuaries in a certain place. So one of, the, one of the goals I would like to do, and I started it when I was a member of the Advice and Assistance, and I'm a member again now, but one of the things I want to do 
is actually get Bangladesh off the ground. They had a small association, but for various reasons, it wasn't developing. They weren't thinking about the professionalism sides. They couldn't get new actuaries in through the door. So it's actually, and are you the size of Bangladesh, somebody will obviously write a comment on LinkedIn and go, you're completely wrong in the size and that's wrong. But the Bangladesh is probably three to four times the size of the UK. There's about three qualified actuaries in that country. Right. And at the moment, I think they're look, looked at as maybe analysts that sort of do spreadsheets and they don't do much more. What we need to do there is actually thinking, number one, how can you educate more actuaries? How can you get actuaries to actually move to Bangladesh or actually probably even better, encourage them to take actuarial exams. So the IFOA or Society of Actuaries in the US, they've got they've got a purpose there to actually support actuaries and students qualify as actuaries because as soon as you've got actuaries then you can actually start pushing that within companies and actually holding the roles that we we take for granted in the UK that we're chief risk officers, we're CFOs, we sort of run companies. There, it's not looked at like that. So we need to actually encourage, you've got business to business, it's that's actuarial association speaking to sort of companies to say, this is the actuarial toolkit that you've got, this is the skill set that we can bring, we can help you make better decisions there. But it's also speaking to the regulator to say you need actuaries in this country. So places like Kenya, in more recent times, they've only in the last five years, and this one actuary is absolutely outstanding there that has changed the profile. Well, there's a lot of actuaries that are outstanding in Kenya. But there's one guy in particular, Sandeep Raichura, that's actually He's, he's worked with the profession, he's changed the face of the actuarial profession in Kenya and pensions and savings and everything there. But he's worked with the government, advised them and actually got the actuary as a sort of, it, it's, almost, it's a recognised role that's required in law for insurance companies now to actually help do that. And it's actually getting the buy-in from regulators, from governments to say, this is the benefit that we can bring. And as soon as you see the skill set that we've got, we're not just pensions actuaries or life actuaries. We're actuaries with a toolkit that can solve problems and help people. And so you kind of start to sort of build all that up, but you have to get the education, you have to get the professionalism, you have to get the buy-in. And it's a whole marketing thing of what what is it that actuaries do. Yeah. When I asked you why you started to look at volunteering, mm. initially it was around presenting and looking yep. at what some of the senior people yep. now it sounds very very different to that what do you get from it now and, and why is it so important to you i think for me the one of the things that i've realized in life as i've got older and again i don't i, <laughs> I don't think i'm that old but <laughs> i think it's trying to find the purpose of what you bring and where you can make a difference and where you get value and the value that i get is when I can actually help people think more widely and make better decisions, bigger decisions, and actually maximise what they are doing. And I think for the volunteering, it's led me to that point. This is not helping one person at a time. This is helping associations and countries and societies to do something different. And I can't do that myself, but I can see the impact of them, the decisions that we make to, to move that along and it, it just feels something that's so much bigger than actually sitting there with a spreadsheet and I remember sort of sitting at a careers day and people, I 
but said to the other guys when they came to my table, what did what did the other actuaries tell you? Oh, it's a lot about spreadsheets. And I just said to them, shut the laptop. The spreadsheet's a tool to do there, but and I told them all about the sort of travels that I've had to sort of, sort of everywhere from Russia to Mexico to sort of Nigeria to sort of Kenya to Hong Kong and the stuff that I've been involved in, what we're actually trying to achieve. And it's actually sort of getting that spark over what why we do what we do. And I think you can just make so much difference in our profession. And I really do get quite excited about that. Where does this sit for you versus the day job? <laughs> the day job the day job has given me the technical skills that I need to do. So I've worked through it. I've learned my spreadsheets. I've not done that through volunteering. I've learned the actuarial models. I've learned what actuaries do. I've sort of built that. I've learned to manage people partly through the volunteering, but managing for teams within there. So I've got that framework. And it is actually something that as part of, as an actuary, I want to give back, not because I'm thinking this profession's given me so much, but because I think there's a lot that we can give to help people. I look at what I'm doing, it's the best way of explaining it. I think there's two parallel paths of my career. I take a lot of pride in what I do with my day job. I take it seriously. I really want to develop the teams that I've got because I'm building the future actuaries of tomorrow. but I've also looked at the other side of, I've actually got this volunteering side, whereas I can make a bigger difference in society. I can't do that from my company. I can do that from my customers and my teams, but I want to help to as many people as I can in both sides. But it, it, it's almost it's almost parallel to the volunteering, if that makes sense. I would mm-hmm. probably call it 50% of my career, although I recognise one side I have to probably give a bit more to because it pays the bills. Yeah. So where, do, where does coaching come in? Because we haven't we haven't come onto mm. that yet. The coaching's the coaching's an interesting one, and I I wouldn't say fell into it, but with the things that I've been involved in, and we've talked about a lot of those. I I was on IFAWA council, doing a lot of international work, sort of chairing those large committees. I was chief risk officer, engaging with a lot of boards. And there was more and more people, by the time I got to 2018-19, there was more and more people saying, can I get a bit of advice on? And I would sit in front of them and so, James, okay, well, when I was on the board and the chair had challenged me in that, I would have said this, I did this. And I was getting these blank looks to go, don't really understand how you would get to that. And there was something went through my head going, how can I help people with the experience that I've got but actually make it useful for them. And it was coaching that was jumping up. So it was different than mentoring because I think what I was trying to do is mentor people and actually help them think through the challenges in the day job. But I wanted to get bigger than that. And with the coaching side, it was actually that formal, how can you actually create right size, a conversation with somebody like what you're doing with people creating that listening space with people, deep listening, looking at the body language, listening to the words, seeing the emotional challenges people have got, the excitement, the things they want to do, and actually give them some direction. But then with the experience that I had as a CRO, a board member, sort of chairing large boards, uh, committees, etc., I could feed off that to help them think differently by asking them the questions. So, well, in that situation, James, while I was on the boards, I'd seen people do it this way. 
how does that land for you? How would how would you be able to use that in a different way? Okay, so I can see some challenges coming through in what you've said there, but if there was no restriction on that and you weren't getting that challenge, how would you manage the situation? Okay, so and then you start to break it down and it was actually a different way of thinking. But I found through the coaching, with that listening, with that emotional intelligence, the empathy, creating the space with people, it's such a powerful space for people to be in. And it's not power for me as such, but I get satisfaction creating that space with people. And I find that every single day that I'm working with teams or individuals that I will help them think because sometimes when you create that space to listen like you're doing just now you're holding a space in a way that it it allows somebody to feel very comfortable it creates trust and then you ask questions and you get curious on their behalf that helps their thinking that brings them along to to come to a different solution a different space and actually they come out of that going i hadn't thought about that before so a lot of people go i won't really get anything from coaching but then they have that conversation somebody asks them a question or a perspective they've not thought about and suddenly they go wait hadn't thought about that before that changes everything and because they've got to that insight themselves I've not come in and said you should do it this way they've got to that they can't look at things in the same way and it fundamentally changes everything that they're doing and it can sort of break through these blockers that they've got whether with a career with a conversation they're nervous to stand up and present whatever it might be you suddenly get a different perspective on it and they go yeah can't look back now and where does it come are you are you coaching as part of your management role in your job are you are you coaching external people it's a combination and so I agreed with my company that I could do some coaching on the sides uh, and I, I hold my coaching sessions outside of office hours, which, to be honest, works for me. It works for the people that I coach because I am, I've ended up coaching a lot of technical people and actuaries because I, I, I look at it as I'm a technical person, but I speak people and I speak technical so I can kind of join the dots to help them think a bit more widely. But I find as well that the I've got a few I've got a few external clients and paid clients but I've got a few internal clients as well that they'll come to me for support and advice a little bit of a mentoring relationship a little bit of coaching but I also find as well that with my teams you can actually coach them in a certain way because when people have got tasks to do they'll come and go what should I do in this situation I don't know, you're the expert on it. You tell me how you would manage this and turn it back on them. And you can actually coach people to help them think, to actually figure out what they want to do. And I've, I, I do that with my teams. But even when I'm holding larger meetings with sort of six, seven people, you too many meetings we go in without an agenda. You right size that meeting. Okay, we've got 30 minutes. What do you want to talk about? Okay, what do you want to get to by the end of that 30 minutes? Okay, where are we right now? Okay, be more specific on that. What What is it that we're actually trying to get to? Okay, where are we right now? Okay, where do you want to start on this? What are the big challenges we're facing? And you kind of work it through and you can actually right size that and check in with them. Okay, we've, we set that at the beginning. Is this still what we're trying to get to in the next 30 minutes? We've got 15 minutes left. But you, you kind of almost coach that meeting to an outcome and so it's it's a set of skills that I've got and I look at everything that I've got just now I've got my risk I've got my actuarial I've got my coaching I've got 
lots of other bits that you go that's the toolkit what which bit do i pull on just now that can be used to the best effect here mm-hmm. sometimes when people think of coaching if if you haven't worked with a coach some people would not really understand what it is or they might yeah. blend it in with management or mentoring yeah or you know things along those lines who should consider coaching and and what are the different ways that it can can help people so um I feel challenged by the current way that coaching is often done, partly because it, it's almost retained for these high flyers and the senior execs and the CEO. When I did my coaching qualification at Henley, it was Henley Business School Coaching Centre. I described my coaching as inclusive coaching because I look at it as everyone can benefit from coaching. The person that I have sitting in front of me, everybody, who's got the most interest or vested interest in solving your problem, you have. How? Who knows most about your life and where you can get solutions from? You do. So how can I help you do that? And so I'm not trying to mentor you by saying, I would do it this way. There might be at times I'll jump in and go, well, actually, I've seen people do it this way and help people through a block. Would that work for you? And it might be, yes, it would, I could do it this way, or no, that doesn't make sense to me, but you've actually unblocked it, but I could do it this way. I've had the opportunity of coaching people from university who are trying to find their first actuarial job to recently qualified actuaries who are sort of going through the what now question to mid-career actuaries who are going through some challenges because they're trying to figure out what's next or career changes right up to the board level and CEOs and you actually see that whole suite that everyone has similar challenges there's a lot of imposter syndrome that goes about but I would say everybody would benefit from coaching and the most powerful thing in coaching is not it's not about clever questions it's not about somebody else giving you a solution it's actually just having a space to think sitting with somebody who's asking you questions and being curious on your behalf, not because they're interested in it, but because they're trying to pull out that information out of you. Like you're doing in this interview, you're asking more about the the things that we're working on and why I'm interested in that. And that helps me think. And that's what I will do with somebody that I'm coaching as well. Actually, if I sit with somebody for an hour, phones are off, emails are off, kids are locked away in another room, not doing dinner just now. The only thing we've got is you and me to think for an hour, what do you want to think about? And I say to pretty much everybody that I'm coaching or starting to coach, when was the last time that you felt really deeply listened to? And sometimes it's just actually having that space to listen, to actually feel heard and actually hear your own thoughts and one of the powerful things in coaching as well you can say anything i will not judge what's been said because actually if you're worried about this or you're not sure about it why is there something wrong with that let's talk through it let's figure out what's going on and look at it in a different way and or get that confirmation why is this the right way to do it for you why what else could you think about but it's about that space and that time to think without distraction. And that that's one of where the strengths come from. We just don't have that these days. We all, we, we log on in the minute and go, oh, I've got my calendar back to back. Take 10, 15 minutes in the morning. What can you drop out of today? What else do you need to think about? Try that with a colleague. Sit for 15 minutes going, I've got a really busy day. 
let's go through the meetings then. Do you really need to attend that? Can someone else pick that one up? Why are you sitting in it? Is there an agenda? And you, you suddenly free up three or four hours just with a little bit of thought that you've spent 15, 10, 15 minutes on that you otherwise might have not had that day to do. Yeah, I was thinking about that earlier because obviously I work on my own. Yeah. If I was in an office, when you do get a bit of a gap between one call and a meeting, mm-hmm. you have to busy yourself. Or you did in recruitment, you have to be seen to, <laughs> you know, if you're not if you're not typing something or calling the next person, yeah. then you're you're not working as hard as you could. But now, I still sit here, but it's a bit of thinking time. I'm thinking about right, this is all in the right place, but but what do I want to do next, or what what can yeah. I do that adds longer term value? And I do, I mean, I, I have the conversations with myself in my head, which might sound a bit <laughs> uh, a bit crazy, but I do have that sort of space for thinking things through yeah. that I otherwise would have just filled with with busy work um, yeah. in the past. Um, I've asked this question to a, to a few people, but I, but usually just in the context of the of the day job but with you there's so many different different aspects to, to who you are and um, what what motivates you what motivates me it's a really powerful question james it's it's something that i probably only started realizing in the last few years but i get a lot of satisfaction by helping people think differently I want to feel that I'm adding a value to something and I'm shifting that along. So it's not that I'm trying to be selfish and I'm doing this for me. It's not about money. It's not about titles or being seen or a platform or whatever it is. It's actually just about helping people think a bit differently. Because I think as actuaries, we're really technical people. And sometimes we've got this training. And if it's outside of that, we can't think more broadly than that. And actually, I want to challenge the people to, why not? What else can you pull on? And I feel that it's something that, I'm an actuary as well, but because I've dug into a lot of different things, I'll pull on my coaching one minute, I'll pull on risk side another minute. I've even pulled, I've even given examples of wine. That's a sort of wine fridge in the background there. And I've sort of given, oh, well, yeah, you've got the ladder of quality coming up the champagne method there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what about products? How can we actually give the micro insurance products to this, to the all singing, all dancing products? And you kind of make these really random relations, but I want to help people just think a bit differently about it. And for me, it's, I get an awful lot of satisfaction and value by sort of seeing that shift in somebody. And I remember coaching somebody a couple of months ago and I had a one hour conversation with this person before work in a coffee shop and some of the insights that he'd had at that time, he was going away going, I know what I want to do and I know what I need to do. And actually just feeling like I've made a difference to his day, to his month, to his career and what he's actually trying to achieve within an hour. I just went back to my desk and sat there for about 20 minutes going, I don't really need to do anything else today. I've I've achieved the value that I wanted to achieve because I've helped someone. And I think it is about that, is that helping somebody and just just making a difference. I don't need to be seen within that. I don't need a platform, but I I just want to be able to sort of see if I can help people think a bit differently and shift things along in a good way. And do you have someone that does that for you? I feel lucky that I've got several people that help me think like that and I help them uh, and I, I'll I'll keep them I'll keep them nameless but there's one or two specifically that I would probably 
just thank them that they are there, that they know exactly who they are, but we've said to each other, if you have a bad day, you call me and vice versa. I'll call you, and if I'm in a meeting, give me 10 minutes to get out of it. But we know that we're there to support each other. And I've got a couple of people like that that I just take so much satisfaction, or not satisfaction, but I, I feel so lucky that they give me that time and vice versa, that we will help them. We will help each other achieve what we need to achieve. What are you looking forward to in the next 12 months? There's a lot of change coming up. I've got to a good position in my company, but I think there's a lot of things. The company's changing a lot. I'm changing a lot over where I am with the volunteering. Things are changing a lot. I'm back on council now as well, and I just want to see, again, where I can make those differences. And I think there's just, there's a lot of, in, there's potentially a lot of fun, interesting challenges coming up, and I just don't feel that I've got anything to lose, so I'm just going to go all out and see what I can do. Well, on that note, I'm going to say thank you so much for your time. I, I don't feel we need to sort of jump back into your your career. It's on LinkedIn. If anybody wants yeah, to wants please. to talk to you about that, they can they can reach out. But there's so many other interesting things that that they might prefer to contact you about. So thank you so much for your time. If somebody does want to get in touch, are you happy for them to do so? I'm very happy to reach out, and I've got I've got my coaching email and LinkedIn, but otherwise just send me a, a message and I'll come back. I, I think I'm probably a little bit obsessive about that these days. I'm, I'm, I'm quite good at coming back on these things. So if anyone wants a conversation, please do reach out. Fantastic. Well, um, once again, thank you so much for, for sharing everything and uh, I wish you all the best. Thanks, James. Absolute pleasure speaking with you as well. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of Actuarial People. Please don't forget to subscribe and consider leaving a review. If you have any questions or feedback or any suggestions for future guests, please contact me on info at actuarialpeople.com. This podcast is sponsored by my recruitment company, Turner Perkins, and you can contact me there at james.turner at turnerperkins.com. Hope to see you again.